This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... Mythos Secrets in the Internet Age. Safety versus Protests in RPGs. Luke Crane. And Eliphas Levy. Last April, the secret masters at Atlas Games kickstarted a new edition of Unknown Armies. It's the legendary occult RPG where horribly broken people conspire to fix the world. Now, the books are at press and digital rewards are starting to land with Kickstarter backers. But not everyone was conscious in April for this dramatic shift in the invisible clergy. Maybe you were asleep, unaware of the occult underground. Maybe you were just doing something else in April. It matters not! You can still pre-order everything offered and unlocked during the Kickstarter and get it all as soon as it's available. From the deluxe edition, whose three volumes are wrapped with a slipcase that unfolds into a GM screen... To PDF, EPUB, and Moby Digital Editions, not to mention three all-new soundtrack cycles composed especially for this project. Pre-order at atlas-games.com backslash UA3 pre-order. Or follow the link in the show notes. It's good to be awake. Welcome to the Preamble Hut for our first podcast of 2017, and the reason we're having a preamble is that we have an interview coming up in this episode a little later on from the ever-delightful Luke Crane, and one of the delights of Luke Crane, uh, well, kids, if you're uh, one of those uh, young folk who uh, have to listen to this podcast in the car while your parents are driving around, and you find it embarrassing to hear swears in front of your parents, let them know right now that there is perhaps a, an adorable swear or two in the Luke Crane interview. Uh, you would say adorable, right, Ken? I would absolutely. The, the number of times I would describe anything involving Luke Crane with another word than adorable would be a limited number. All of, all of Luke is adorable. His, his little hat, his, his uh, <laughs> lovely little beard, his game designs, all of Luke. He's just nothing but adorable. He's totes adorbs, as the kids say. Right. So, uh, warning issued, uh, our preamble uh, accomplished, and let us move on. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, there is an odd confluence of mysterious cold spots Eldritch Icor and Wikipedia pages, because here, Patreon backer Laurel Halbany asks us, In traditional Lovecraft-esque horror, much hinges on knowledge being hidden and difficult to obtain, existing in only a few copies or being locked away by scholars. Does this trope still function in the information age, where anyone can tweet the king in yellow one line at a time, or put screenshots of the Necronomicon on their Snapchat? How does this fit with the gaming trope that exposure to such knowledge requires sanity and stability checks? Or do we just take care to set all our horror games before 1993? Information v. Horror, Robin. What side do you come down on? I think that there are a couple of ways to go at it. And uh, one, of, one of the ways is just to go, yep, the internet tore the membrane. And all those crazy things that are happening are happening because this stuff is now increasingly out there. Uh, and, uh, so that brings us into sort of, uh, 
uh, morphing concepts from the Esoterrorist into your Cthulhu game, which is there must be some counterforce out there, uh, a, a Delta Green, as it were, that is working to counteract the obvious ability to get a hold of this uh, stuff so that there are, you know, there's a, an organization and they, you know, working through the NSA or whatever, that they have backdoors in Twitter and Facebook and Wikipedia and are ensuring that none of this extremely damaging material gets out there in order to infect people's minds. Or it just has infected their minds, and that's why the world seems to be coming apart. Um, so those are two different ways to go. Uh, they both have their drawbacks. Uh, one is you now got a good guy organization that lends you sort of power and support, which is a sort of opposite the sense of sort of isolation and discovery that uh, you imagine as being key to sort of that whole Lovecraft, you know, I, I alone have correlated the contents thing. But even in Lovecraft, every single library seems to have a copy of the Necronomicon, even though there's only six copies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not actually difficult for anybody who's in the know to find uh, what they want. So it may just be, you know, that you can look up the Necronomicon and see, you know, uh, most of its pages. And there's a Wikipedia article about it and a Snopes article about it. Um, or it can be, could be that this information is so unstable and weird and supernaturally redolent that it can't be contained on the internet, right? That you can write it in a book, but there's something about it. If you upload it, the pixels start to go weird and servers go down and it's just not technically possible to propagate this information before Cthulhu and the other old ones uh, want it to be fully propagated. I think that we're getting towards what I would use as the control device there when you talk about that uh, there's all manner of distortions and, and weird things. And I don't know that you have to say something supernatural about the Necronomicon, but you can say, for example, that unless you can look at the actual inscriptions in the actual colors or in the actual geometry that they're inscribed in, you can't get, you know, A-list magical knowledge from it. You can certainly learn names like Shoggoth and Yogg-Sothoth just from a crummy, you know, uh, uh, OCR, but you can't actually cast spells out of it unless you physically hold the book because it's the way that the thing is actually physically drawn on the page. There's that no makes blood it... in a JPEG. Exactly. And uh, this is... uh if you are a fan of any sort of occult book, you can go online and you can download any number of copies of uh, the key of Solomon or whatever. And again, if you think, Oh, everyone would find the Necronomicon. That means it's one book in this immense list of grimoires that's online. You still have to know that it's the special one. So uh, they're sure the Necronomicon groups have better access to a crowd built um, OCR of the Necronomicon, but they still are a minority because there's another group over there that says, no, no, liberal Valigis Crowley is the way he will let us correlate the contents. And so you'll get into big arguments between Crowleyites and Alhazardites on, uh, on really obscure parts of Reddit. Even now you can find these actual mystical tomes online, but they will say in many cases, these diagrams are drawn in color in the page and we don't have a color picture of it because we didn't own the book. We just had this crummy reprint of it that was done in 1900 or something. So you have to go and uh, it, it's a very, very expensive matter for these little tiny occult presses to come out with these color true versions of, an, of, of a grimoire. And this is if you're looking at regular old grimoires that don't 
have anything to do with Yogg-Sothoth in the real world. So there's all manner of different ways that they can be presented where you can get all the knowledge you need to get you as an investigator into trouble and point you in the direction of the story, but you can't actually summon Azathoth and destroy the world without having the actual physical grimoire or doing some degree of version comparison. Because again, there's 113 versions extant of the key of Solomon. Even in Lovecraft, there's half a dozen versions of the Necronomicon and three of nameless cults. If you have to get one copy of each of these to do uh, textual criticism and figure out what Alhazred actually wrote back in 750 AD, that's going to be a lot of work. And it requires years of learning to even be able to do that kind of textual criticism. People, you know, go to seminary for it to just to do it for the Bible, which is literally the most read, best understood, uh, or at least understood as a text, maybe not understood as a, you know, spiritual co- concept, uh, book in the world. And they still have to spend years learning all manner of different languages and different techniques to put it together. You can imagine that the same amount of effort aimed at producing useful information out of the Necronomicon, you know, right now people don't read some everything they download, much less uh, spend years dedicating themselves to parsing out the exact meaning of the Key of Solomon or the Liber Artifius or whatever. Right. And that gets to the question of, can you actually perform the magic from it? But the uh, another issue I guess we want to grapple with is is the idea, the mythology of uh, Cthulhu and the Old Ones, is that out in the cultural consciousness, even though people are, you know, there's these old books, and they talks about these entities, and they're called Cthulhu, and, you know, uh, somebody made a horror movie about that in the 1950s, and all the, but it's a lost film, the negatives have been burned, um, that is there that level of awareness, or is it, you know, when you start a game in 2016, are the characters completely surprised by it and, and unaware of it. Well, again, the precedent set in Lovecraft is not not that that information is all extinct, but that it's uh, held by a, a small number of people. So it may be kind of widely known that there's this, uh, you know, set of beliefs the way that people are vaguely aware that there was a Mothman. And then some people have read the book and some people, have, more people have seen the movie. But uh, you know, as you start to investigate, you know, this series of weird murders and then it's, it's a Cthulhu cult. Oh, wow. I guess they, they must be into that weird movie that was destroyed or something so that you can still have a sense of doubt and uh, questioning that you slowly resolve to your great detriment as you investigate the case. And, Wait a minute. This is all, this is all real uh, without uh, having, you know, every, you know, member of, uh, of Reddit is just, oh yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, Yugalanak. Everybody, here's a photo of Yugalanak and here he is at Ramsey Campbell's book launch and, you know, that you don't have to, uh, you can still make things weird and mysterious and unknown to the extent that they are in Lovecraft without, you know, saying that everything is just total public knowledge and everybody's blase about it. Yeah, the the things that in Lovecraft are they're still public knowledge, as you point out. Everyone seems to have read the Necronomicon, but they don't associate it with the real world until suddenly, oh my gosh, it's a real Shoggoth! Ah, and and Durleth, of course, famously would have characters in his stories read Lovecraft books, uh, mostly so that he could put a line in. I ordered the book The Outsider and Others from Arkham House for the reasonable <laughs> price of five dollars, <laughs> and so they read Lovecraft, and then they're like, oh, but that's just nonsensical neurotic fiction, and then oh my gosh, it's a real thing. So you may not want to have in your campaign world Cthulhu be a crazy pop cultural micro trend the way that it is in our real world, but 
you might not want to have it be a completely unknown secret. It might be a thing that, yeah, if you go on Wikipedia, there's an entry for Cthulhu and it says mystical monstrous entity first discussed by Abdul Alhazred in his uh, magical grimoire Necronomicon. Uh, some scholars have connected it to uh, the Cthulhu god of the ancient Sumerians or whatever, and it being Wikipedia, of course, that's wrong. And, and that's, you know, the one paragraph squib like you would have if you look up any other obscure god on the internet. And then you just, you, your response in game is just as wild as it would be if you discover that there's a cult of people murdering people over, you know, Vertumnus, the Roman god of vegetation. And you'd be like, that seems odd that there would be a cult of people worshiping Vertumnus and burying them alive and covering them with gourds or whatever. Right. And if, if you're a cultist and in the, uh, if you're going to use the Lovecraft stories as, uh, you know, deep backstory, that in the 20s and 30s, all of a sudden there's this wave of busts and, uh, you know, the, the, the Waitley Coven was broken up and the, uh, the New Orleans uh, Cthulhu cultists were all uh, arrested and disappeared. That remaining cultists are, you know, maybe we need a lower profile mm -hmm. with this. So let's go to uh, all these libraries that have the Necronomicon and let's just steal the Necronomicon from these libraries and let's uh, get rid of all this stuff. And, you know, maybe even the sophisticated ones are, you know, let's have a disinformation campaign. And so it may be that in your 2016 campaign that there are no copies of the Necronomicon anywhere when the action of your campaign starts, that there's just, you know, here's the library record of here's when it was stolen from the Miskatonic and here's when it was stolen from the Bodleian and here's when it was stolen from University of Un Buenos Aires or wherever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, that was, that was just Jorge Luis Borges borrowed it and never gave it back. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, yes, it's, it's now, it's now in a dimension where, uh, there's, uh, an infinite number of copies of the Necronomicon, each one letter different than, than the other, mm -hmm. uh, because he put it there for safekeeping, obviously. And so that can be part, that can be the thing that sort of flips the trope on its head is that you as players assume there should be all this information out there and there just isn't. And there aren't any academics who can tell you anything about it. And, you know, the, leading figures all died in disgrace and you know everybody knows that was just part of the craziness of the 20s and 30s and you know uh, rational uh, thinking came back after world war ii and, and everything's fine now yeah and, you can treat uh, it sort of like um parapsychology which was almost respectable in the 70s and then everyone sort of shook themselves like a wet dog and said no that was crazy talk you're never gonna get a, a government grant to study that ever again and, you know, seminarians are just as uh, timorous and, and sleek it as everybody else. So they stop looking into that magic book when there's lots of other magic books to look into. Or maybe Ayatollah Khomeini condemned it and there's a fatwa on anyone who has a copy of the Necronomicon, right? And that yeah. sort of, you know, keeps people's heads down, too. And so, you know, part of the action might be going to the strange, brutalist, concrete uh, bunker that was created in the 70s to uh, to study all of this stuff that, you know, the final incarnation of the Armitage project mm -hmm. uh, and you think that you'll find all the books there but no you just find some rats and uh are those human remains or those just dog bones i don't know and then you or know, you just find a bunch of people who have um uh, uh diverted the original intent and are now just a bunch of crystal waving hippies yeah or Nyarlathotep. Uh, yeah. he's uh he's active in the world he could have just said you know what uh it's not it's not good for our schedule for all of these uh people to be running around knowing uh, what our plans are. So let's just get some Hounds of Tintalos to come and swipe all the copies of everything. And Hounds of Tintalos, obviously, they can get into any USB port. So mm -hmm. that uh, that takes care of stuff on the internet. That's why the USB ports have trinary geometry. Exactly. Yeah. If you, if you look at them at the wrong angle, 
uh, you you go insane. That's how you can never put a USB plug into a USB port without trying three times. Exactly. Because it's right. that third geometry that the Hounds of Templars come out of. Uh, well, now I think we're definitely revealing too much. Oh, so it's yes. Time, time to head on past. Is that a Hound of Templars coming out of my corner? Ah! Plug it in! No, the other way! No, the third way! Hey kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One to One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One to One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. It's time again for Ask Ken and Robin, and this time, uh, Patreon backer Jeff Cars asks Ken and Robin, How do you reconcile the philosophical ideal that art should, by its nature, make people uncomfortable with the growing popularity of methods to opt out of content in games. Uh, so, Ken, uh, we're in a safe space here uh, on the Ken and Robin show. So uh, what do you say, first of all, to Jeff? First of all, obviously, art has a lot of philosophical ideals, and you would uh, be surprising the heck out of Michelangelo if you told him that his job was to make people uncomfortable, when his job was to make people consider the role of God in their lives and be grateful for it. So right there, that's, you know, we are, we are defining art a little narrowly, but yes, much modern art has been, uh, operating on that ideal and some role-playing games have been operating on that ideal. Right. And certainly political art, uh, there are different ways that artists try to bring about, uh, political change and the two, uh, you know, competing threads, uh, would be, uh, the idealists and the Brechtians. And so, uh, Idealists have always envisioned, well, let's present the world that we want to bring into existence and make that positive and popular and make people aspire to create that world. Or you've got German uh, communist playwright Bertolt Brecht, who theorized that showing people a problem already having been solved was insufficient because that would just allow people to be complacent. But what you needed to do was confront people with the horror of the situation that you wanted them to rise up and say no to. And so that's where I think he's not the originator of the idea that political art should make you angry and uncomfortable and confront you with the injustices of existence that you want oh, to address. That goes back to Voltaire, at least. Yes. Uh, but he uh, theorized about it pretty coherently, and that's why I, I use 
you know, the Brechtian side of that, that equation. So the argument then of if you want to bring about social change uh, through your role-playing games is... Or even if you want to express an artistic ideal of, of discomfort. I mean, Lovecraft, right. for example, uh, while not wanting to bring out about social change as far as anyone can tell, certainly felt that the weird was intended to make you uncomfortable, make you have the sensation of outside forces scratching at the rim of the universe, not to lower you into human concerns and, and Victorian morality, but to create unease and terror and other uncomfortable sensations. So it's not just political discomfort. There's a lot of different aesthetics that can lead to discomfort, and many of them do show up in role-playing games. Right. And, and in the land of narrative, uh, horror, of course, is generally anti-aspirational, mm -hmm. although many horror stories uh, end with the vanquishing of disorder and uh, the return of a, a putative order that uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, as you pointed out, ends with a sentimental family scene that no one ever bothers to dramatize. Yes. <laughs> and uh, crime drama, of course, that you can have uh, both the Agatha Christie mystery where a, a somewhat twee cast of characters, uh, one of them has committed a sort of a delightfully naughty murder, but everything is really fine in the world at the end. Or you can have, you know, the different uh, hard-boiled and noir genres, which are all about um, a corrupt system. And that, of course, gets us back into the, the realm of politics. Uh, but even when we're interacting with art that is meant to be disturbing, either on a political level or on a philosophical level, we choose when to engage with those things. I certainly like harsh art that freaks me out and forces me to confront uh, either the dark side of life or to uh, that I have to sort of puzzle at the morality of. But I also choose when to do that and in what circumstances. And so, and it's usually pretty well signposted. Yeah, when you go to see a screening of Tokyo Fist. <laughs> yes, uh, <laughs> unless you uh, foolishly did not read the Wikipedia and assume it's a harmless boxing film. <laughs> yeah, um, you, you know what you're signing up for. And so, the question of opting in or out of a role playing game experience is that you just need a whole bunch of people to opt in or opt out, right? If you're all going to go, if you're deciding as a group whether to go to see Tokyo Fist, you all have to decide that that's the disturbing experience that you want to have that night. Um, or maybe some of you would like to have a disturbing experience, but not over the Christmas holidays. And maybe some of you never want to see uh, a, a Jinya Tsukamoto film. So I think the key point here is that gaming is about a, a group experience. And there are, uh, I think, people who want to confront uh, the injustices of the, of the world in a gaming context, and a lot who like, you know what? Where I confront the injustices of the world is life. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, for example, I'm a woman and I frequently get harassed. So uh, I would like my gaming space to uh, not inform me about the nature of harassment. Because guess what? I figured that out already. Probably know it better than some game designer. Exactly. So uh, how about we take the option where we have the idealized version of it, where those issues might be in the background, but they just never come up. Uh, and so, for example, in... The Yellow King RPG, Paris, even in the Belle Epoque era, has uh, some heavy elements of uh, social injustice. But I don't want to say that because we are covering this historical period and it's a horror game, that you must directly confront all of those every single time for every group or you're being a wussy. So instead, the thing is, if everybody agrees that they're happy to confront all of the worst of this period, you can uh, go ahead and do that. But... It has to be 
a unanimous choice, because otherwise you get the situation where the uh, four people who uh, don't feel particularly uh, personally oppressed by entering into those things go, yep. And the two people go, oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want it to get that uncomfortable. You can't have it be a democratic vote because then the people who don't want it to be uncomfortable are going to be made uncomfortable. So the, I think that uh, the key here is that gaming. I mean, it's, it's like voting on what to have on the pizza if someone's allergic to mushrooms. Exactly. You, you, you can't vote on it because if everyone wants mushrooms, too bad. You still can't give your friend anaphylactic shock. It's uncool. Right. Because the, the mushroom is a deal breaker. And so is going past people's uh, comfort zones because uh, when people confront uh, the dark and the terrible uh, in art, they're doing so uh, willingly. So it's not, I don't think that it's a matter of, uh, you know, oh, you're, everybody has always opted out of those experiences uh, when it's a single passive interaction with art. And the only thing different here is that it's a group uh, decision in which the uh, everybody gets a veto. One thing that I would differ with, though, is I, I have seen some people suggest that uh, certain to uh, topics that are disturbing but commonplace throughout all of literature and uh, and pop culture should never be addressed at all by anybody in role playing because some people might irresponsibly use that to impose them on people who don't want to have that imposed on. I think that we still have to maintain a space in which adults can talk about mature themes that are also present in other art forms and can, or can even play with those and, mature themes and that also, are even present in, in, in order to play forms. with those things. And that means they should be able to discuss it in private because uh, if your standard is could a 16 year old uh, boy use this to freak out a 16 year old girl and turn her away from gaming. Well, unfortunately the nature of <laughs> yes. that, that's, that's everything. Yes. Yeah, 16 year old boys are endlessly capable of angering and uh, disgusting 16 year old girls, or at least so I recall from when I was a 16 year old boy. So ultimately it, like so many other things, it comes down to an issue of, of consent of, of aesthetic consent. Yeah. The notion that art has a philosophical duty to make people uncomfortable as we have discussed is not universal, but even if you assume that it does, it is not the same as an imperative to make everyone uncomfortable, uh, because that is uh, discourtesy uh, uh, along with everything else. Likewise, the existence of someone having a preference for one or another kind of art or a sensitivity to one or another kind of art does not then mean that they get to make all art the kind of art they want, whether all art should be Scarlett Johansson martial arts movies or all art should be sensitive art that doesn't ever um, uh, engage with this potentially uh, traumatic subject. Both of those are unreasonable requests, even though the first one is obviously correct. Right. And I guess an exception would be, you know, a classroom situation where if, uh, you know, we're going to uh, have a class on the history of role playing, and we're going to have a, a session where we, you know, look at this disturbing material uh, and I, as a professor, expect everyone to come to terms with the full spectrum of what's in gaming, including uh, stuff that uh, crosses the line and may be objectionable. I, I guess I would feel, oh, well, I'm going to warn everybody up front that this is part of the deal and that if this is a deal breaker for you, don't take this course. But even then, it's not a matter of erasing consent. It's just making sure the consent is early enough in the process that there's no misunderstanding. So, Ken, have we uh, pretty much uh, disturbed our way through the subject? Yes, I think that we have uh, made people who thought that we were going to make them play a game that made them uncomfortable, uncomfortable. And likewise, people who thought that we were going to say no one should ever play an uncomfortable game. So, once everyone is uncomfortable, 
and we've said uncomfortable enough times, I think that it's time to look for a more comfortable hut. Werewolves of Dacia? They are the descendants of the other son, uh, Romulus's twin That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Drew Clory. Andrew Laliberti. Chris Lydon. Rick Neal. And Andrew Miller. Hey, welcome once again. We have yet another of our now copious uh, series of Ken and or Robin talk to someone else uh, segments because we've had a bunch of extra time at uh, Gen Con to line up a an array of superstars. A what dazzling cavalcade is what I would But what call. superstar could be more of a superstar than Luke Crane? You are known for uh, making things burn. You're known for holding a torch. And uh, so start us off by telling us about your new cool thing that all of our listeners will want to check out. Oh, sure. Uh, well, uh, this Gen Con, we are back in force. We have a new Burning Wheel book, the Burning Wheel Codex, uh, which we are fulfilling frantically, fulfilling the Kickstarter right now at home, or continuing to, uh, and we will have the first copies for sale at our table, which you'll see is a beautiful cerulean and gold cover. Mm. Perhaps our, our best cover to date of any of our books. And so does Codex uh, uh, assume a uh, collection of putting everything all in one place? Is that yeah, what it's, a, it's an anthology book. Uh, we took... Uh, I mean, we had such a kind of deep catalog of material that had fallen out of print, and so we took kind of the best of and went and re-edited it. And uh, one of my friends and longtime fans, uh, Topi Makkonen, who uh, uh, introduced himself to me 10 years ago by saying, you have my quote in your SIG on RPGNet, um, <laughs> 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 which is Burning Wheel is... Uh, I, now I can't even remember. All right, so forget it. Right, Shh. but 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 having a sig in RPG Net does date the story. Yes, yes. Isolated. the story has has a, a Stranger Things level of period detail. That's, now. that's right. Audiences uh, are 
casting back to those palmy days. What edition of D&D were we playing when Topi said that to me? Anyway, he is a very astute student of Burning Wheel, and he took a knife, a, a very, very sharp knife to the material and carved it up and just, honestly, and I, I'm sure you both uh, agree, like having like a, an editor like that who is both enthusiastic um, and very sharp with his criticism is great. It really energized me, and you know, I and I was far enough away from the material that I didn't have a lot of emotional investment in it, so I wasn't defending any of it. Like when he came to me and said, "This is shit," uh, I took a hard look at it and went, "Yeah, yeah, you're probably right." <laughs> so the um, so the codex is is the codex the newest iteration of Burning Wheel, or is this like the Unearthed Arcana of Burning Wheel? It's an Unearthed Arcana of Burning right, Wheel. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it takes kind of it, ten years of collected wisdom. Best practices. Yeah, right. pumps it into a book. Uh, so what's an example of something that his scalpel taught you about Burning Wheel that you didn't know before he uh, whipped it out? The There were a set of life paths in there, There or there are a set of life paths in there called the Rodin. There are Ratman analog or Skaven analog that a friend of mine had developed uh, you know, with my help back, you know, very early days in Burning Wheel, and he, Topi just kept hammering away on these. He kept pointing out things, this, 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 and, you know, it took us a, a few weeks for it really, like, coalesced as to what was wrong, and that the, my, my friend, and, you know, God bless him, he did the best he could in his early days, but, uh, you know, he had designed each life path to be kind of a complete experience and what you know Toby hammered into my head was that burning wheel life paths are all lacking something right when you take one the character is missing something important and which drives you to choose right. another one to go forward or it drives you into you know taking an adventure or something like that and so by having these characters that were too complete they just didn't feel like they had any motion. The story to them. was already done, and now what are they doing? Right, 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 right. So, I mean, we just kept hammering away on that. I mean, I would do a revision of it and give it back to him, and he'd be, mm, he'd sit on it for a couple of weeks and get back to me, you know, and you know, point out some things that we'd missed. We just kept going, kept going until, uh, you know, I was satisfied ultimately. And I think they're way better. They're they're playable now. They feel like they have life. That's good. So uh, you've got uh, the new burning. Codex. Mm -hmm. uh, is there more Burning Wheel stuff now? Did that re-energize you and you're like, now I'm going to go do more awesome Burning Wheel stuff? Or are you on to different uh, pastures? We'll do... We're going to noodle around in the Burning Wheel pasture a little bit. Uh, we're, you know, we're also continuing uh, to develop Torchbearer. We have the uh, Hand of the Pit at Gen Con this year, which is developed by our friend Todd James, who is a... And for those who don't know Torchbearer... Uh, Torchbearer is our... Um, Fantasy dungeon crawlers, kind of survival horror uh, RPG based the, on the Mouse Guard. You, you've heard of a love letter to D and D. This is the post breakup, drunk, three in the morning <laughs> phone call to yeah, D and D. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. In case you haven't heard, of or Torch perhaps Bear. the lengthy series of posts on Instagram to D and D. Torchbearer is the love letter to original D and D's encumbrance system. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Like, have you ever wondered how long your character was this holding is how a torch? serial killers are born, people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, they were. Her, her fingers, that's the part I always loved. <laughs> so, uh, why do you think that several years ago there was sort of a big kind of a simultaneous gestalt uh, decision on the part of the uh, story and indie scene to address D&D? &D? How would you account for that uh, sort of movement. Yeah, well, it had been bubbling up for a long time. Um, you know, uh, 
over on Story Games, there was Redbox Hack, uh, oh, I want to say 10 years ago or, or more, uh, which was one of the first that I can remember where somebody was taking the, you know, the, the Frank Mentzner, in that case, uh, version of D&D and noodling around with it. Um, it's something it just right reached kind of zeitgeist level over there, and maybe it was enough distance from D&D. And, and also D&D was back. Like, you know, D&D had been back in force. It had instantiated itself. You know, it had, it had gone through multiple editions. Like, it was just, it was kind of okay to re-examine D&D at that point. And you have, like, hungry game designers all feeding off of one another, and it was very much a community at the time. Uh, and in my case, we um, we wanted to make a fantasy version of Mouse Guard as soon as we released Mouse Guard, right? Like, fantasy is kind of the bread and butter of RPGs in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tor and I, you know, discussed it very early on, and Tor had started work on Torchbearer in 2008, right after we had released uh, Mouse Guard. It just took us five years or something to fucking release the game. <laughs> so, uh, but we, we, Tor and I were arguing about some procedure in, you know, early D and D. We're like, you know, and we're both just you know, blowing shit out our ass. We're just, there's nothing, I'm sorry if I'm not supposed to swear. Um, well, you've sweared, you've sweared a bunch, so yes, we're yeah. going to have to put an explicit tag on this podcast, which we don't normally do. I'm sorry, So we, family. Uh, uh, yes, ahead of the segment, Ken, we'll yes. have to remember to warn the parents who expose their children to this podcast. On purpose. Yes. <laughs> sorry, I'll try to cool out. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're just... Well, it's, it's mostly uh, bodily humor. Kids love that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Farts. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so we're arguing about a procedure, and finally I said, you know what, I, I, I don't want to argue, let's just play the game. Let's just get the game and play it and see how it actually was played. And so then we... Uh, Not perhaps a uh, radical decision. What? It, you'd be surprised. <laughs> well, but, no, and, I wouldn't. That was, that was said in a cruel tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> so many people have ideas about what D&D was at what juncture and how you played, especially like the early stuff. Uh, so getting it out and trying to play it rules as written uh, was very enlightening um, and ultimately fantastic, very profitable. I mean, I still play the 1981 edition with uh, my colleagues at Kickstarter. I have multiple games. Are you the GM? ongoing? I am the the dungeon master in. Oh right, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> Excuse my lack of OSR fidelity. <laughs> I was just reading about that in uh, John Peterson's latest essay, which is yet unreleased, but it is magnificent. Well, you said John Peterson's essay, so obviously it's magnificent. <laughs> so you've uh, cleverly provided us with a segue into the discussion of Kickstarter, because in addition to creating numerous magnificent games yourself, you have been uh, instrumental, perhaps, in the creation of scores of other magnificent games, and a lot of draws, but that's the way the free market works. As uh, games head or rep at Kickstarter, what is what do you see as your role with regards to the rest of the games community? I mean, assume your role at Kickstarter is to make sure that nothing sets the brand on fire and everyone makes their 3%. But, I mean, facing out towards us, the designers, what's what does Luke Crane bring to that that some monkey in a suit would not? <laughs> uh, well, I hope that when you talk to me, uh, you see that I have nothing but sympathy in my eyes for the terrible process uh, you're about to embark <laughs> on making a game. <laughs> it's true. You, you can't see his eyes, listeners, but they are, they're, they're like uh, Methodist Jesus. They're, <laughs> no, please. they're, they're blue and pure and, and weeping. I really. want that on a t-shirt now. Yeah. Eyes like Methodist Jesus. Um, so, 
I have a great sympathy for the production process for making games, and so uh, which I think is really important when somebody is talking to you about you know this this thing that they want to make. It's so much easier to have like a productive conversation if you understand the process and uh, you know what 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 they're about to go through. Um, so, so I, I mean, I've been making games for over ten years now, and. I would, I mean, helping people make games for just about the same amount of time as well. I mean, that's one thing I really love about our community is that, you know, we, it's very, very flat, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're always teaching one another and handing off knowledge. Uh, There's very little, you know, hierarchy in our community. So, you know, I I try to hold true to that and I try to pass on whatever knowledge or make connections uh, for creators as best I can. At this point, going into my fourth year at Kickstarter, I have accumulated such an understanding of kind of the lay of the land about who makes what and when and how. Uh, like, I am able to walk, especially in tabletop. It's a little bit harder in the digital space, but especially in tabletop, I'm able to walk somebody through, you know, from concepting all the way to distribution and retail, like, you know, through manufacturing. And, and, uh, and I'm able to, you know, kind of guide them through best practices but I'm also able to like point to services and say like talk to this person or get quotes from these three printers or um, or here let me introduce you to these distributors and it's uh, I, I think that uh, you know I'm bringing value like I, I've seen games now that have like come through Kickstarter that I've talked to and worked with and are now in stores uh, and, and are better because of what you said and are more profitable because of what you said I, I, I would hope so I mean so, so what's the biggest mistake you helped somebody not make? What's the biggest mistake I helped somebody not make? Oh, that's, I don't know. <laughs> the the RPGs, actually, they're a funny one. The, I don't know if you remember early Kickstarter RPGs, but they were, they were terrible projects. They would show maybe a piece of art and then there would be a block of text about the game, which left the people at Kickstarter who were not me utterly puzzled as to what these people were talking about, especially when these games would raise, like, Forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars, and they're like, "What? <laughs> Why would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> this is a scrawl on a napkin, yeah. right? Uh, I would only pay twenty thousand dollars for that. What, what are what are they talking about? They would say to me, "There was a point in, in my tenure at Kickstarter, by the way, that someone shouted at me from across the office." What is Cthulhu? <laughs> and I had to get up in front of the entire office and explain. Yes. Which, Here's I, a pie chart of Cthulhu-related activities. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Um, you just have to hope there's one like you at the NSA. There is. Yes, right. So helping, like, you know, encouraging, like, RPG creators from big and small to show the game, to show the character sheet, right, to to show the system, to show a video of people playing the game, and to treat it like any other game instead of just, like, I know that your RPG is going to be a giant book of words. Trust me, I know. <laughs> but there are better ways to express what you're doing uh, there. The, the other thing that I hammer away on all the time, like the, 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 the bad practice that I, that I don't like, are early bird rewards or discounted rewards. All they do is disappoint 90% of the people who want to support your project. Right. right? That's, they undervalue your game, and games are already so undervalued. Right. And then the people who didn't get the early bird reward are just pissed. Yeah, they begin with a, a sense of aggrievement, which you which you don't want aggrievement. Good lord, <laughs> this is Wednesday I, of all yes, people. The show uh, hasn't even started. They, they, they begin with a with, with a sense of grievance that they then carry into the interaction with your game, and who needs that emotional thing at the beginning of the palette, right? 
Right, right, exactly. You're just setting the tone all wrong. So I'm always encouraging creators to re-examine that kind of relationship that they, you know, they want to have. Either make it so that everyone who gets you to your funding gets the discount, or just set a price that you like. Yeah, and charge it. Yeah, and right. just go. Because it shows a, a sort of a fundamental lack of confidence in what you're doing, that, oh, I'm going to really need a whole bunch of people at first. I'm going to need so 100 people. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, it's, it's a... It's not very well thought out. And it comes... That's, I think that's a process that was adopted from the, more, the more tech and design side of things. We're also, we are dealing with, like, very, very high-ticket item, high-priced uh, tickets, rather. Like, you know, uh, like laser cutters for, like, $500 or 3D printers or something like that. Where, like, maybe, like, you know, shaving into the margin to get those first 100 people actually makes a significant difference, you know, on what the Kickstarter shows. But for when you're talking about, like, the difference between, like, a $15 game and a $20 game. People just aren't price sensitive. Right. Anyway, until right. you give somebody else a better deal. Uh, until they, then they the guy got, got, got it for 15 then they're totally <laughs> Right, right. So in the, uh, so it, it, back in the early days of Kickstarter, when, mm-hmm. like you say, a, a block of text was raising $60,000, and role-playing games have remained a category leader, like a real big chunk, much bigger than their actual percentage of people who, <laughs> engage them in the real world yeah. at Kickstarter, right? I mean, that's like a leading brand segment. Or, or is it less so now that the rest of the world is slowly caught up? No, well, so tabletop games on Kickstarter have raised $286 million. That sounds good. Since, that's good. <laughs> games, in, so you can do the math here, uh, there are six, I think six or seven subcategories of games on Kickstarter. Tabletop has raised 286 uh, million out of the 512 million that has been raised in total for games on Kickstarter. Right. So more than half of all money in games, games is uh, tabletop. Right. Which means that 10 percent of all money raised on Kickstarter has gone to tabletop games. Which means no. tabletop is big. Yeah. That's right. Uh, it's a nice thing. And RPGs. I uh, I ran a search. I I don't want to quote a number because because I can't remember exactly. Uh, but the RPGs were a, an appreciable percentage of that yeah. uh, 286. Right. Far outstripping... Much bigger than their sale percentage, even in hobby game stores, much less, again, the actual right. human world outside our walls. Right. And also, I don't want to quote a number there, too, because if you follow me at all on Kickstarter, one, you know I'm obsessed with RPGs, and two, you might know that I actually curate a list of RPGs, but it's all observational hand curation. It's mm-hmm. me, you know, finding these projects as they come in and, and, right. and hand-tagging them. a tag them. for it. Yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's kind of my personal mission. They tried to take that away from me at one point, and I was like, no! <laughs> to put that list back. How dare they? Uh, the, um, it, was an, it was an oversight. So, so, yeah, I don't want to quote any numbers, but when I did do some informal counting, it's shocking uh, how active the RPG community is on Kickstarter, and I love it. Right? What a great home like for us. People wanted RPGs all along. Yes. Somehow the system to get them RPGs had, had, had faltered. Had, had, had broken down somehow. And right. Who, who knows what it might have been? We all do. <laughs> and, um, so, Kickstarter, huge success, obviously. Burning Wheel doing great. When, all America wants to know, are you going to do the 16th century Paris hex crawl that uh, the world cries out for? We all want to see it. Uh, obviously, you've got the chops to do it. We just we won't. When is it coming out? When can we expect to back it on Kickstarter? Oof, uh, so Ken is calling me out for my miseries and misfortunes, like OSR hack that I it's did a last. Beautiful summer. little chapbook. Everyone who likes OSR or 16th century, 17th century France should look at it. Yeah, it's I mean, you can get it for free on my site now. It's just a free download. We did a like a short zine run of them last summer. 
And I, right, and Ken is also calling me out because, uh, or it's 17th century, um, it's 1600s. Uh, yeah. I am obsessed. But we were talking about the wars of religion. Which the yeah, that's true, century. too. So, that, that that's, that's true. But anyway, I am obsessed with the period. So I, uh, I, I'm stuck right now, though. I'm stuck in between the poles of so many different projects. And that's the one, though. That's the star glimmering on the horizon that I want to escape to and just... I, I, what I really want to do, I, I, you'll forgive me, is I actually want to do a, um, a complete, mad, historical deep dive and do a, a like, Insanobots burning wheel version of that with like all the really super detailed life paths and all the like historically accurate stuff. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? You know, it's, it sounds <laughs> like the sort of thing I would only need four copies of. <laughs> the, the, so here, so hear me out though. The problem is, is that burning wheels fightiness like which everyone hates but i love is is <laughs> which is fine it's I'm, called I'm, art people I'm, yeah. I, I'm comfortable with that not science but it is really based on like muscle powered medieval meatheads beating the crap out of each other whether you're an right. elf meathead or an orc right. meathead or whatever but it's really really like steeped in that ethos and it's what like rapiers and fencing right right which that's the doing the research and and, and playing out mysteries and misfortunes in the OSR vein has really taught me that it requires something else or it has a whole different feel but it also and, and not just rapiers and fencing but the idea of like a musketman you know leaning past uh, like a rondolero and you know and firing while you know halberdier is trying to like hack through the line like there's like there's just a, a kind of a sense of of discipline and carnage at the that kind of merge yeah. in this period that Burning Wheel just doesn't do a good job with, so I've got to come up with a solution to that. Gunpowder will mess you up. I think that <laughs> Ariosto saw it first, but yeah. we've all seen it since then. Yeah, uh, it's true. It will mess you up, but it's a challenge that one day I hope to live in uh, for a long time. So, as a closing question, what is your favorite film from that that uh, they said in that period? Oh, I um, I'm going to say something. Utterly scandalous, uh, and it. But Queen Margot, uh, Isabella Johnny, just like I, I don't care. I, I don't care that it's not faithful to the novel or not really faithful to the period. Because I believe you said Isabella Johnny. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Problem um, solved. Yeah. yeah. But it's just. It's also. It's. It's kind of. It's seedy and dirty and I don't know. Just something about that movie just gets me and. Uh, the poisoner and everything and the lipstick it's just so ridiculous I love it well thank you very much uh, Luke for being someone that uh, Ken and or Robin are talking to (laughs) my pleasure thanks a lot The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. 
The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you. It's time to wend our way once more up the cobweb stairs to chuck a hand and salute at the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky and head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist who awaits us today to tell us about Eliphas Levy. Depending on how these uh, bank segments that you've been hearing stack up, we probably talked uh, earlier in this uh, episode about my uh, research on 1890s French occultists uh, for the Yellow King RPG. Well, uh, Lifus Levy is the occultist that they were all influenced by from a previous generation. His heyday is kind of the uh, 1850s and 1860s. He was born Alphonse Louise Constant, and uh, he traces a really interesting arc over the course of his life from Catholicism to socialism to occultism. So, Ken, where would you start telling people about Eliphas Levy? Well, I would begin by saying it's Eliphas Levy, right. but that's just me. I don't know. I'm not French. I'm not an occultist. And, and his name is his own Hebrew translation of his own name. So, undoubtedly... Right, of he, Alphonse yes, Louis. he would so, undoubtedly have pronounced it in yet a, a fourth way than either of us just did. Right, a magical Kabbalistic way, yes. probably. And, and French, too, so... And French. Anyhow, I would begin the Eliphas Levy story with... Uh, him still being Alphonse Louis Constant and having been a active socialist in uh, falling away from the Catholic Church's teachings of don't be a socialist, but keeping most of the other ones. He was a very, um, uh, he was, a, what do you want to say, a right socialist? Because um, he was a Demestrian and Demester is very much a uh, everything in its place and everything in order type guy. Um, and so he moves into the revolution of 1848 feeling that now that we're all socialist and smart, we can build a perfect society. And then there's a bunch of massacres and the revolution falls apart. And he says, well, that didn't work. I guess I have to look at a deeper truth. And the deeper truth that he finds is occultism and ritual magic. And he has sort of picked up a little of that early on because the socialists and the occultists uh, intermingled as many people did. And then in 18, in the 1850s, he meets a, um, uh, an eccentric Polish, uh, magician, Freemason, crazy person named Joseph Maria Ronsky. And Ronsky initiates him possibly into a higher tradition or possibly just convinces him there's money to be made pretending to be an occultist. Hard to say. Right. And that's Ronsky with a W. Ronsky with a W. Ask for him by name. And, uh, he writes a book called, uh, the dogma and ritual of higher magic in 1854 that becomes a big deal and a big influence on the French occult because he's, he is a, a syncretic organizer. He takes all of the sort of flowing bits of the occult and puts them down into one system and says, this is the true system that underlies all knowledge. It underlies, you know, the Vedas. It underlies ancient Egypt. It underlies Freemasonry, and it is the thing that prefigures the one true truth of Catholicism, but in a France that is becoming ever more secular, he is selling it uh, with the goat head, and that is how 
he builds his uh, little circle of occultist buddies. Right. And so uh, I guess his biggest influence on the occult is uh, the drawing of Baphomet, uh, which uh, you probably can all uh, conjure up in your heads. It's the classic public domain image that you see in a lot of uh, mm-hmm. occult uh, books and, and web pages and uses an illustration. And uh, it later uh, is assumed to be a, a, a force of demonic evil that he's representing, but really he's trying to uh, represent kind of the balance of all things, including sexuality and everything else as in, in this one image that turns out to look like a, like a super evil Satan figure that you might want to make a miniature of. Yeah. It's very cool. Anyway, he sort of builds his little cycle. He, at one point, uh, summons uh, the spirit of the magician Apollonius of Tiana, uh, from whence he either gets the knowledge not to try summoning spirits or <laughs> gets the ancient... You're lucky, You're lucky you summon the one spirit who's not going to eat you. And let me tell you exactly. how not to repeat that Let mistake, me man. explain to you in detail. Or... That, but that is sort of his, his cred, right? Just as, uh, Crowley, uh, is in contact with the demon Charanzan in Algeria and he talks to the spirit Iwas in Cairo, just as the guys who founded the Golden Dawn have letters from secret masters and, um, Helena Bolovatsky has her Mahatmas that, that drop things into her closet. Uh, this is his ticket is that he at some point summoned up the spirit of Apollonius of Tiana, which is kind of an interesting thing because Apollonius of Tiana represents the old classical order of magic. And it indicates that just like his socialism, Levy's occultism is kind of conservative and kind of, you know, uh, high church, if I want to say that. Smells uh, and, and that, bells. Yes. Uh, spells and bells. And it's, and it's very, uh, fun. Obviously the, the doc, the dogman ritual is, is great fun. A.E. Wait, my, my spirit animal in British occultism, because he's an American, uh, translates it as transcendental magic and becomes a big whooping deal in the Golden Dawn era. And uh, he sort of sets out the notion of occultism as uh, Prisca Theologica, as the forerunner of Christianity in a way that was done in the Renaissance and then sort of ignored it for a while until Constant rediscovered it. He's sort of a... He's sort of the Agrippa for the 19th century in that he takes a bunch of things, doesn't do a lot of original work, barring the occasional summoning, and lays it down for other people to follow along and do crazy magic with. And so uh, if he's sort of a a synthesizer, does he have a a big theory or is he just sort of taking all the practical elements and putting them together in an accessible format for other people to get a grip on? Well, his, his theory is that, um, is very much the notion that, uh, uh, all occultism is one set of true doctrines, that these true doctrines underlie all belief and that they are the precursors necessary to truly understand Catholicism. And that's sort of his notion that the occult is both universal and Catholic. And one assumes also maybe a little socialist because he's probably still certainly a man of the right left, uh, throughout his life. And you can't, in the France of 1860, 1870, be wandering around drawing goat heads without being at least somewhat an antinomian and considered to be a problem child. So there's the charlatan believer question that we usually come to, but it, there's not a lot of charlatanry around him, is there? I mean, unless you believe that he faked the uh, summoning of Apollonius of Tiana. I mean, that's the thing. He d- he does make a magical claim. Right, but he wasn't scamming people particularly. He was, he right. was writing no, books. No, no. And- he's writing books and publishing them, yeah. and he's not, you know, he's not running a cult. He doesn't, you know, put uh, whammies on people and, and mess with them in the way that his later disciples might. Um, he's not even getting money from the government to spy on people the way that Pappas does. So he's 
he seems to be pretty much on the up and up. He's a pretty straightforward guy. Uh, you know, again, not super exciting because he's a, he's a guy who wanted to be a priest, didn't become a priest because he fell in love, became a socialist, and then wrote a bunch of books. So not quite, you know, not quite Gandalf, but on the other hand, he did summon up the spirit of Apollonius of Tiana, so that's something. Well, it looks like uh, you just uh, offhandedly mentioned the most interesting thing about a character who, uh, in the book I read, was not portrayed as interesting because that because that's the way the book did things. <laughs> yes, because uh, anyway, that's this is a giant digression. Uh, well, we'll talk after the show. So, uh, I guess the the other question then that we all come to at this point in, in these segments is: What are his superpowers? What what magic do you get if you practice? the magic of uh, Eliphas Levy. If you practice the magic of Eliphas Levy, um, you get the abilities of, you know, the sort of, of Kabbalah, the, the three strains of Kabbalah and Magia, which in his case would be, uh, you know, summonings. And uh, in theory, alchemy, although he's not a big alchemy guy, he knows it exists, but he really thinks that Kabbalah and Magia are the things you need to be paying attention to. So, you can summon demons. He's not a spiritualist. He doesn't believe in your nonsensical Aunt Mildred rapping at the table. He says the only ghosts that come back are really boss, powerful things, many of which might be demons. Keep keep your head on a swivel, boys. Um, so he's very much about that. So your, your power that you would get from Levy would be probably the power to take another magical book and sort out what the true magic is in it. And also you would have you know, uh, making, you know, your sort of standard uh, white magical, making a, a circle and, and summoning a demon and things like that. Cool. So uh, what are there other sort of pop cultural references to him other than the uh, that recurring image of, of Baphomet occurring in like uh, Haxan and uh, the devil rides out and so forth? How, how else is, has he appeared in in pop culture? Well, he also is, is the guy who popularizes the pentagram, which he puts on Baphomet and the upside down pentagram is the bad one. Um, so he's, he's got that going on and he's also a big tarot card guy. Uh, it is one of his, uh, disciples, I believe Paul Christian, who does one of the first occult tarots. So, uh, that then sort of begins a, a whole different level of magic in, uh, fiction. He doesn't show up an awful lot. He sort of gets referenced because he's one of the people that you drop into things. Um, Lovecraft drops his name because he shows up in the Britannica article on magic that Lovecraft used as all of his sources. Um, I think, uh, he's mentioned a couple of other times by other authors, but he's not, he's not really a, a pop culture character in the way that Crowley is or in the way that Papus would be if more people knew who Papus was. Um, he's, he's sort of a, a, a background guy, uh, a name drop, not a, uh, name dropper. So if you're running a, a scenario in 1850s or 1860s, uh, France, I guess the obvious uh, scenario hook is that you have summoned up that which you cannot put down. And so you go to him for uh, advice on what it is that you need to do in order to unsummon the thing you've summoned. And then, of course, that lays out a series of obstacles for you to complete before the demon that you've summoned goes around and, and eats the face off everyone in 1850s Paris. Right. That he's sort of your, your, your go-to guy. And if you do it when he's, you know, relatively late in life, he can, he can sit there and give you books to read and say, well, you go out and do it. Um, or maybe he shows up to rescue you again, like Gandalf. But uh, then he has some sort of a uh, ongoing problem that he needs you to fix because he's not as young as he used to be. And there's one book that if he could get it, it would really help him out. And why don't you just go convince this uh, particular crazy um, uh, Satanist in his castle of books uh, in the in the countryside to, to, to loan it to him? 
or something. Yes, and, and the front door is trapped. Right, yeah, so, so you won't want to go through the front door. Uh, well, uh, speaking of going through doors, I think it's time that we went uh, through our door outside of this podcast and back into all of our uh, everyday regular lives. So see you next week, folks, where we will be back once again to talk about a whole bunch of other stuff. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Eskvagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such guardians of ghastly secrets as... Christopher O. Delta Green. Andrew Collins. Paul S. Ends. Andrew Scheel. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com backslash user backslash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again we will talk about stuff.